Hello and welcome to episode 58 of the 1099 for the week of September 12th, 2016. I'm your host as always, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is a writer for GamesIndustry.biz and a previous editor at GameSpot and US Gamer, Canada's own Brendan Sinclair. Brendan, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Josiah. How about you? I'm doing well. Uh, as, as I mentioned to you before, before we started recording, it's it's weird that you know when I was coming up, I always listened to the hotspot sent like the homework in all the time, did calls, emails. You were one of the few people who've ever pronounced my name fully right. And I've had Carolyn Pettit, uh, Tom McShay, Kevin Van Ord, and you were the missing puzzle piece to this. So I was like, I really need to talk to Brendan just to complete this complete track. I'm happy to round out your collection. <laughs> That's the real purpose here. Uh, as I mentioned, you're currently writing at gamesindustry.biz, which is different from your normal game spots, your IGNs, your polygons of the world. I mean, the site has a grander focus on design development and publishing side of the industry so from your point of view what makes games industry from most of the offerings that are out there from my point of view the biggest thing that makes games industry dub is different is just that we've we can always uh when we're, we're asked about story selection or things like that um we can just point to the site's remit which is to to cover the games industry mm-hmm. uh to you know why did you do this um at at GameSpot, uh and it wasn't it, it wasn't always about hits at GameSpot. Uh, i don't think it's always about hits at, at most places but there was there was definitely a very clear uh tie between like whether you judge a story a success uh and how much traffic it did yeah. At uh, at gamesindustry.biz, we're sort of a niche publication. Uh, we do have advertisers, and the the audience that we are uh, essentially selling those advertisers is an audience of you know people inside the industry, uh, developers, publishers, marketers, uh, people that a more elevated level of of discourse about the industry and maybe uh, uh, different angles into what you know what they consider what we consider news um, so it's it's much less you know rockstar hinted that they're going to announce the next grand theft auto game next week and more rockstar sold a bazillion copies of grand theft auto last week is that freeing for you because i remember when i was a news editor for a smaller site uh very often every single day i would visit gamesindustry.biz because that's the kind of news that i'm interested in that kind of deeper design level that you know the outlook on the industry versus like you said like a new grand theft auto rumor or oh my god here comes red dead redemption 2 or anything like that so is it exciting to be able to cover a story that interests you and not worry about you know i need to perfectly align this story so that we hit all the correct seo metrics uh i'm I'm trying to think of how to phrase this without throwing anyone under the bus (laughs) um but when i was at GameSpot, i always felt very fortunate that the um the news team was sort of separate from the rest of the staff Mm -hmm. um so we we were given latitude to pursue issues that we thought were, were interesting or 
you know, cover stuff that we thought was legit and kind of look the other way on stuff that we're like, yeah, people will click on this, but it's total BS. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, at the time, and there were certainly, I was there for seven years, so it changed over that course of time up and down the amount of scrutiny that we got from, from people above us. Um, but yeah, over, over that time, more often than not, I would say that uh, I was left to my own devices at GameSpot as well to make the same kind of editorial calls. Um, and the only, the only difference is that I'm making calls now with a different audience in mind. You know, so yeah. like collector's edition of the new Warcraft DLC. Uh, when I was at GameSpot, I would say that, the, yes, that is something our audience cares about. I will cover that. And now I look at that and say, that is not something this audience really is interested in. So, I mean, I mean, people always talk about how like, oh, it's all about hits and there's this tremendous pressure to, to, to do traffic. And, and, and you... You hear horror stories about <clears throat> some sites that like would pay by based on traffic and things like that, uh, or keep running scoreboards of you know whose yep. stories most hits. And like I've I've been fortunate maybe um, not to run into that at any of the the places I've worked, but really that was just you know GameSpot, GamesIndustry.biz, and then probably before internet advertising got very sophisticated at all. Um, Core Magazine and Zen Gamers and uh, Polygon before the current Polygon. <laughs> early 2000s. So none of the places that I've ever worked had this really huge emphasis on you know, generating traffic with every single piece. And I'm incredibly grateful for that um, because it's you just hear horror stories in, you know, in traditional news media, in gaming news media, uh, in any kind of ad-driven media uh, about the, the focus on this. Because you have that focus on the business side of the industry, developers, publishers, and stuff like that, instead of kind of the the more enthusiast aspect of some of those sites, have you found it easier to get bigger names and really interesting people to come on for interviews or uh, do you also do you happen to because you have a very small actual editorial team from what I saw do you get a chance to bring on certain people let's say a Peter Moore to kind of write something for you as like a here is his view on something or is it all through interview processes we, we do have uh, guest editorials and, and, and write-ups from time to time like um, uh the creative director of Butterscotch Shenanigans. Oh, uh, what a name. Yeah, it's St. Louis-based studio that uh, made Crashlands on PC and mobile. Um, this week they put up uh, a, a really good piece, I think, that's them explaining how and why they did a cross-platform launch between PC and mm -hmm. mobile, even though the uh, conventional wisdom at the time, uh, and still is, is that premium games on mobile are dead, and that when you try to, to launch the same game on both platforms, you're inevitably ticking off, you know, one group or compromising the game for the other group. Uh, and they, you know, they heard all the, the conventional wisdom and people saying, yeah, don't do that. Mm. Uh, they thought about it and then they ignored those people and the game did really well. 
So like we, we have something like that uh, fairly regularly. We've had War Inspector wrote a series of columns for us. Um, and Peter Moore is, he, I don't think he's ever written columns for us, but he'll show up in our, uh, our comments section once in a blue moon. Oh, interesting. Like yeah. that's, that's the sort of thing that didn't, didn't really happen, uh, at, at GameSpot. Um, but you know, because of the, the site's, uh, focus being what it is, is, you know, more more likely to happen because you so often are talking to these different you know, developers and publishers and people in the community and, and that side of the business. Have you ever felt the urge to get out of games writing and actually start making games instead? Because very often I feel like there's a, there's always people who would say like, Oh, people, some people just get into games journalism for the explicit reason that they want to eventually make games. And I've never really seen you as that person. Cause again, you wrote for with GameSpot for what, seven years. And now you've been at, gamesindustry.biz for quite a while too but has there ever been an urge to join one of these other companies and actually start making games or be a part of the game making process uh not not because it's something that like i really want to do Mm -hmm. uh i've i've considered it at, at various points um partly well mostly just because you know media is not a great industry to be in right now. I don't <laughs> think. Great, no. Um, and it's it's not getting it's not getting much better, uh, if if at all. And like this is this is just basically think about all the people that you know of who retired from games journalism. They don't retire from games journalism. They leave it. Yep. Uh, because it's it's not a field that provides stability for people to make it to you know 65 or whatever and, and then call it quits and that that might be changing because the industry is certainly uh you know it's it's big enough now it's getting more entrenched and more mature and even though there's still you know plenty of disruption every few years with you know free to play or the the iphone or things like that um it's it's now enough of a a money-making industry that there might be uh, waves of game journalists that start retiring in a few years because it's not explicitly a young person's market anymore. Um, so like it, I would be, I would be happy doing essentially um, games journalism as I've been doing until the age of retirement. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but I'm not sure that that is going to be an option in my life, you know? Yeah. It's not, it's not specific to my life, really. <laughs> yeah, it's it, anyone who it, gets into this business, you run the risk of that. Because like you said, it's either people leave to do something else, very often in games, or they hold on to that job you know, for dear life as long as possible because there are so few full-time opportunities out there. So it's it's just kind of a it's a bit of a difficult question. Um, I, I don't have programming skills or you know much in the way of artistic talent, so so that also might limit my uh, my options on some game development jobs. Uh, and you know, designers or people who think that they could be designers are a dime a dozen. Um, so it's it's 
you know, there there are other reasons as well. And and I've thought about like my my time in the industry and and my knowledge of it and and the areas where I have some expertise and like that could be applied to different things than what I'm doing right now. Um, but I haven't, I haven't run into, uh, anything yet that would be, uh, preferable. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the quest, the answer to the question is basically like, no, I never really wanted to do something else. Might have to go. Yeah. Well, are you kind of heartened by seeing sites like you know, Zam is getting a lot bigger than what it was and, uh, you know, Austin Walker over at vice gaming now and you look at uh john davison uh had him on recently to talk about glixel and you know what rolling stone is doing with that of course you know we've seen different sites like game pro and joystick and other things shut down but do you think this is a positive sign for the industry because you know cynically you could say like oh maybe it's just a couple major media kind of branches saying oh games are hot let's get into games but do you think maybe it's more than that? Do you think that we could see a little bit of a resurgence of actual full-time work and interest in games writing? Well, it's it's nice to see companies investing mm. in games journalism, to see Glixel and, and Vice, things like that. Uh, but we've, you know, we've we've seen that before. Um, Polygon, I think, was prior to that the last big time that you're like, wow, people are really throwing a, a fair bit of money into this into this endeavor. And the thing is like as much as these sites can produce some great content uh, and, and as much as they might hire people and give them a good job for a few years, they don't fundamentally address the problems in, in media at the moment, much less gaming media. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I, I think this might be getting a little bit, broader than than you wanted the discussion to be but i, oh, I think a big part is just advertising driven media is um so incredibly damaging to our society at this point yeah uh, there is when when there is nothing worth uh writing about unless it pays for itself when you monitor every last story every paragraph of every story mm-hmm. And you can put, you know, a, a price tag on how much money that brought in, and whether or not that was worth doing. Uh, you just, you know, it's 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 like playing a game and min maxing for the the best effect, because you, you've only got one imperative, and that's make a profit with the business and as much of a profit as possible, and you just tweak absolutely everything you can to maximize that one variable. And like that is in, in journalism, especially um, that is hideously detrimental to, to the, you know, the goal of journalism, which is to create an informed populace. So it's great to see people putting money into journalism and making jobs for, for some talented games journalists. Uh, but ultimately, you know, esports, VR, augmented reality, these things will either, you know, pan out and grow, and then we have more jobs, which is great, or they will, you know, fizzle, and the, the industry tends to go in little cycles where it's like, oh, it's hot now, uh, people are less thrilled with it now, and oh, hey, it's hot again. 
Uh, and when it's hot again, there's going to be people willing to put money in it, in, in publications that cover it. Uh, and then when it fizzles, the money will disappear with it. So, you know, you can get on that treadmill and then just try and jump between jobs or find stability as much as you, you want in there. But, you know, th- this the new wave I don't see um, fundamentally fixing that, that, that problem and that cycle that will keep repeating. Has... And of course, no one's fully figured out how do we fix, you know, the ad model. But has GamesIndustry.biz done anything differently to find other revenue? Because, like you said, it's it's kind of niche. It's not, you know, the same scale as an IGN or a GameSpot. But you do have that recruitment database. You do have a company directory. You do kind of, you know, try to get, you know, as, as many people register as possible. Of course. So have you? And you're a writer. You're not running the entire site. But it, have you noticed that they're doing something differently? to generate interest and revenue beyond just the ads? Well, they, they do have a jobs board. Um, and, and the jobs board, uh, I'm not privy to the, the numbers behind the site. I don't want to be. <laughs> it just it, it affects your, your, your story decisions, mm-hmm. you know, your assessment of what's news and how to present it when you can really see exactly... You know, like, well, how much money are we making? How much? What's our burn rate with all the staff? Things like that. And I, I'd rather, I would rather just worry about, you know, is this newsworthy for our audience or not? That said, yeah, we do have a jobs board. Uh, we we have advertising that we can sell to people at a. Uh, I suspect it's it's a little bit it's either a higher rate or it's easier to sell to certain companies because we are, you know, selling a more focused niche audience. Like who do you want to reach developers? Okay, great. Our audience is going to get you more developers per, you know, however much money you're spending on this than if you were advertising on GameSpot. So that I'm sure that's part of the, the pitch. And then we do uh, sponsored content pieces every now and then, which are clearly labeled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am, you know, sponsored content pieces are one of those things that, that are super common in media of all kinds now. And I really fundamentally dislike, hey, but me too. you know, I, I'm not the one that, uh, you know, pays for the site to run. I'm not the one that, that worries about keeping the lights on. Yeah. So it, it's necessary evil kind of thing. Where, where I'm not, I'm not going to throw too much mud on it just because, you know, it's clearly labeled. People, people know what they're getting, and uh, as much as it might be a little obnoxious, like you know, you have to, you have to make money somehow. Yeah, that uh, for my full time job that isn't related to games, we started doing like. I do regular interviews every week with people from like HP and IG, uh, IBM and uh, CA and stuff like that. And we started recently doing premium interviews where like they give me the questions to ask them, which is one of those things like you, I understand how the business model works. And, you know, you're at that point, you're kind of helping to shine a light on products. But there's always that moment of Ugh, like this feels it feels weird. And you also mentioned before, knowing the stats is sometimes not great when you're actually writing news. Because you don't want to worry about, you don't want to know everything that gets hits and everything like that and try to focus your content on just popular things. Because I wrote a for a smaller site that I had the Google Analytics data right next to me at all times. So I knew, you know, 
this is what hits. We need to keep talking about Minecraft, everyone. Give me another listicle that lists the top 10 creatures on Minecraft because that's going to hit. Did you have access to any GameSpot data like that? I know you were like a senior news editor, which is, you know, higher position there. Did you, especially around the end, kind of get pushed in a very specific direction about, you know, we need to make sure we are writing news that covers this very popular game or did that never happen? Uh, at, at GameSpot in the, in the last, you know, year or two that I was there, um, there, there was m- more of a push towards, you know, monitoring what, what people were clicking on, what they were interested in, and then providing them more content about whatever those games were. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely, I definitely saw that while I was there. Um, again, with the, with the news side of things, we were a little insulated, uh, from that and it was never, it never got to the point where it was just, you know, completely odious. Like, that's not why I left GameSpot at all. Um, Do you mind if I ask why you left GameSpot? Again, I I wrote for them too, and I, you know, I love those guys, and I'm not trying to, like, throw dirt on GameSpot at all, but was there a specific big reason you left, or was it just time to move on? It was uh, my, my wife now mm-hmm. um, was moving to uh, Toronto because she had a dream job. And uh, what I do is something that, that could be done from, you know, wherever. Uh, and GameSpot, originally I was going to keep writing for them just remotely here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were, there was some, some hang-up where they weren't really getting, getting their ducks in order on that very quickly. Yeah. And... Uh, and an opening came up at gamesindustry.biz, and I thought it, it suited what I wanted to do uh, really well and was a good fit. So uh, when I moved uh, to Toronto, I I also moved to gamesindustry.biz. Gotcha. And did you always want to do news? Was news always kind of the focus, or was that one of those things that there was an opening game spot, and that's kind of how it went from there? I think news is what I was uh, best suited to. Uh, like I went to school for for journalism, mm-hmm. um, and I'd I'd worked at a couple of uh, small suburban newspapers in the states, and my my trajectory had been kind of going back and forth between, uh, like out of college I, I worked the police and fire beats for a newspaper, um, so basically just hard news, straight news, yeah, and. Then I left that to to be a, a reviewer for a gaming website, and then uh, I went to another newspaper to write their entertainment section. So it was kind of like zeroing in on this writing news about video games kind of thing, where I'd go hard news, far fluff video games. And then yeah, softer news, and you know, uh, more substantial gaming coverage, and just kind of the uh, the news beat on gaming sites seemed to be like the uh, the nice middle ground for me. I also get motion sick pretty easily, so being a reviewer uh, was really tough sometimes. Oh, really? Yeah, because I would just like I would stock up on Dramamine. And oh then my play god! Terrible play through like terrible ps2 games 
<laughs> so like you could probably never play Mirror's Edge. Like that might be the one that just completely throws you off. I haven't played it. Um, let's see, Bioshock, and Bioshock Two did it for me. Wow. Um, but I was I was willing to take the Dramamine to get through those. <laughs> and um, just just recently, I played a a mod for Doom Two, and in like five minutes, it just had me, you know, like doubled over and ready to hurl. Does does VR make it even worse? Or is that fine? I haven't, uh, I, I've tried, like I've done a number of VR demos mm. and they've mostly been fine for me. Um, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't spent any like prolonged amount of time in there. Oh man, that sucks. Um, quickly going back to the, you know, you were, uh, you got a journalism degree, did a lot of hard news beforehand. When you look at, how news is treated in the games industry. I mean, do you think there's enough genuine, interesting, investigative reporting going on? Or do you kind of see a lot more people who are finding press releases and rewriting press releases? Is there someone you kind of look toward and say, like, we need more of that kind of coverage? We need more, I don't know, like the the big Kotaku exposés or we need more blank? Is there kind of any anything out there you see that uh, someone out there who's doing a really good job? There are lots of good writers and writers that are capable of really great pieces. And everyone has misfires every now and then. But I mean, like, I I generally like what Simon Parkin does Mm -hmm. with his features. Um, I I like what uh, Games Industry every Friday has an editorial from Rob Fahey, uh, who's written for the site for years. And I I think he is... uh, as far as like an opinion columnist, uh, as as good as you can find in the industry, mm-hmm. um, just that that every week he has something substantial to say about some topic that's relevant is is pretty stunning. Because like I I like writing editorials, but if I had to to come up with one every Friday, you would get some really <laughs> really bad editorials where I'm just like making up stuff to care about and and you see that sometimes right oh totally uh, like there are there are sites out there that have you know their their opinion page and it's just kind of like yeah, this feels like you're forcing it so uh he doesn't really feel like that and i don't know beyond that i don't uh i don't really single out people that much just because it's there's a lot of talent in the in the industry and they um you know they'll 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 do something wonderful a few times a year and you'll mm-hmm. see it and it's great but i don't know do the, you... this sounds really like not charitable but... <laughs> no i i get that like i do you read uh, do, you, do you go out of your way to read a lot of games writing outside of what's required of your actual day job or you want to like do you enjoy kind of going into other industries seeing how other people cover things and then see if maybe you can pick up some ideas or techniques or ways of writing that are kind of foreign to the games industry it tends to be that i will uh i will i will read things online and the things that i that excite me and and make me say like oh well that's 
that's a style of writing or this writer is doing something interesting um, that that maybe would be nice to take back to the games industry. Like that, that's usually writing from outside the games industry. Um, I like uh, Chuck Klosterman. Oh yeah. Uh, there's uh, uh, Down Goes Brown. Sean McIndoe is a uh, he. He writes about hockey for uh, a bunch of of websites now. He used to write for Grantland. Um, a lot of the people from Grantland actually, yeah, are are excellent writers. Uh, well, a lot of the people who were from Grantland because that's gone now. Um, and you know, you'll see stuff pop up on Vox or Vice or just around. So, like, I'll, I'll I'll read a lot, but it's not it's not like loyal to one writer or one website or one industry. Um, it, it's a lot of it is just kind of things that surface on my Twitter feed. It's amazing how much of that has come up for me where most of what I find is just someone who I appreciate will retweet something and I'm like, Oh, what's this? And suddenly I'm down this rabbit hole. I mean, that's how, um, I mean, that's how I found Grantland back when it was still Grantland. That's how I found uh, Jason Concepcion who now he used to write for Grantland, uh, now writes for the ringer. Like someone retweeted one of his articles once suddenly I was reading him all the time. It's Twitter's become this odd curated news feed for me where I like that's where I find a lot of that stuff. Uh, um, it was uh, Tom McShay actually got me reading Bill Simmons back in the day. Yeah. And that was, you know, how I found Grantland and Grantland was how I found Sean McIndoe and, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of the, the people that I will read now just kind of, uh, it's that same sort of thing that Twitter is basically. It's just friends saying, Hey, check this out. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I used to listen to a lot of the Grantland podcasts and now listen to a lot of the Ringer podcasts. But the first podcast I ever listened to was you and Tom McShay talking about Metal Gear Solid 4. Um, it was, I think, a spoiler cast is might have been yeah. what it was. It was all up from there. <laughs> I it was I had no idea at that point what a podcast was to be honest like I had never paid attention um, and I remember being like why is there this like 90 minute to two hour long audio file on GameSpot about Metal Gear Solid 4 but I was so like just rabid for information about Metal Gear that I was like I'll totally listen to this and then from there it was kind of this weekly thing where I was always listening to you guys so how rewarding was hosting the hotspot back then I mean as, it was a lot of fun. Did, did as we, a news editor, don't you like do you you don't really get a chance to put a lot of yourself out there because you're reporting. So was it cool to kind of like you know show more of your personality? Well, that that wasn't the motivation, I guess. It was a lot of fun though. Did did we explain in that Metal Gear Solid podcast why we were doing a Metal Gear Solid podcast? Oh God, you probably did. But that was how long ago? Like eight years ago, nine years ago? I, I yeah, two thousand seven. Was it because had Tom never played a Metal Gear game until that point? Right. Uh, he hadn't played it. And this was... Uh, so over the Christmas break of 2007, I guess, when that game came out, mm. um, Tom had played through the game. And he was super excited to talk about it. And he he asked me, like... He, he asked me during the break, like, oh, wh- what day are we back? Because I want to, you know, I want to talk about this. And I'm like, okay, I think we're back, uh, what, Monday, January 2nd or something. And so we both show up 
to work that day, but we are the only people <laughs> at work because I was an idiot. <laughs> I was wrong about what day we were actually supposed to come back. <laughs> so, so we were there and it was just like, well, you really want to talk about Metal Gear. I'd, I'd like to talk about Metal Gear. Instead of going to a restaurant somewhere and talking about it over lunch, why don't we just you know, go up to the podcast booth and record this thing and, and worry about getting it up on the site later? And, and so we did that, and that was the Metal Gear Solid spoiler cast. Man, I had no idea about that. I just remember it was you two guys talking about Metal Gear, and I'm like sitting at this computer for some it was like i woke up early it's like 6 a.m listening to two guys talk about Metal Gear solid 4 for a long time uh was it weird because at that time there was some turnover at GameSpot with like the jeff gertzman thing oh yeah you know, oh yeah everything like that <laughs> and now you're filling these shoes with this because you had been on the podcast i'm pretty sure when they were still around but you know now you're hosting this thing how daunting if that's the right word for this was that task so this thing basically, um, the hot spot fell to me. Uh, <laughs> like at the time, I don't think anyone that was in the office wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the a lot of the old crew had left, you know. So like Alex Navarro, uh, Vinny Caravella had hosted it briefly. Oh yeah, uh, until until he left, and then uh, Tor Thorson the uh, GameSpot news boss took over. And after, I think he hosted it for a few months, but it was, um, it was a time crunch and, and he had a lot of other stuff to be doing. So he, um, so he was kind of like, well, you know, this doesn't work with all of the stuff that I need to do in my day to day. And it was kind of like up for grabs for a minute there. And I was like, well, I like, being on the podcast i'm i'm cool to do it i think that i could you know bring a different approach than than the uh than what it had been like i know it would be different but um you know if no one else wants to i think like it would be really just shameful for for GameSpot to not have its own podcast and i knew going into it like no one knew who I was. No one wanted me to host this thing. I was only hosting it because I don't think anyone else at GameSpot cared about it. And they would have just let it die otherwise. Um, so I started hosting it. And like I don't have a radio voice. And I don't have a YouTube personality. <laughs> um, so I kind of knew what I was in for. Uh, especially since, you know, you have this audience full of people that loved what, uh, what Jeff and Ryan had done with the show. And all of a sudden, like, here's, you know, Mr. Monotone hosting it and taking <laughs> all the things. Uh, and I, I'd seen the, the, in the comments section, I'd seen the, um, the, the, the blowback that Tor had gotten just for being Tor when he hosted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went in like eyes wide open, knowing that uh, they were just on it uh, for not being Jeff and the Giant Bomb guys. Um, but you know, it's it fine with that. <laughs> I got to spend a, a, a day and a half uh, working on this thing once a week, and it was a lot of fun to you know do that for work and get paid for it to just sit in a room and, and 
shoot shoot the breeze with with some of my coworkers. So uh, yeah, and over over the the weeks and months and years that I did that, uh, we'd get you know the, the the people that were just commenting to say how much they hated us and loved Giant Bomb. Uh, I think mostly just got tired of saying that they that they hated us and went to Giant Bomb. So, yeah. you know, it it kind of uh, it, it cleared out, and we had our own little you know following. Uh, I don't think it was ever uh, as as you know successful or or large as the the following for um, you know the Jeff and Ryan era by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, I I, I felt like there was a group of people that liked what we were doing and that was enough for us to keep doing it. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I had never listened to the hotspot before that. So that was my first introduction to it. And, uh, you know, I so was... you didn't realize exactly like how much we were just <laughs> on its grave or ruining. What I didn't realize before. the downgrade. I had no idea. It was the only <laughs> thing I ever knew. No, it it's was, uh, <laughs> it, it was cool. And, um, it's, it's amazing to think that, you know, now with how big podcasts can be, at least like back then, they're like, oh, we don't, you know, no one really want to do it. And, you know, like people weren't even advertising on podcasts back then. I know I've heard Jeff talk about like he was trying to push for that. And they're like, oh, no one, there's no money in podcasts. And yeah, it's it's kind of crazy yep. how far it's come. I'm not sure anyone even talked to me about the potential of advertising on the hotspot. Um, and it, it was just kind of, it really was this this little area where we were left to our own devices to do what we wanted, you know, within reason. We weren't, like, breaking the laws of nature or, or <laughs> obscenity rules or anything like that. Uh, and when you don't have oversight like that, uh, two things happen. One, you get to do whatever you want and really try and explore some different unusual things that would never happen otherwise. Uh, and two, you eventually get demotivated because you feel like there's no one that actually is paying attention <laughs> to what you are doing. Like they've just let you go off and hide in a closet for a day and a half every week. And they don't really care. They don't know what else to do with you. Um, so like we did things like, um, we had, uh, future convicted felon Leland Yee on in the middle of that, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger versus the oh, ES. Yeah. Oh, and, and that was like, I, I just kind of sent out an email to his, his press person. Cause he was, you know, state Senator in San Francisco. Actually he might've been assemblyman at that point. Um, and we, you know, just kind of on a lark, like, hey, do you want to come down to the show, do a podcast about video games? <laughs> and shockingly, he, he said yes. And then it was like, oh, oh, crap, now we have to do this. And you can just get away with it. Yeah, I mean, it, like, that's, it's, it's a good, I mean, that one is a good lesson for journalists just because um, it's, you know, the worst that can happen when you ask for an interview generally is that they'll say no, mm -hmm. you know, who cares? You'll get over that. So if you, if you just go ahead and like take a moonshot on people that have no good reason to be talking to you, you might actually get them. <laughs> I forgot that happened entirely. Do you have any desire at all to 
do your own podcast on the side with maybe Tom, Caro, Kevin, any of them again? Or is it one of those things that's just without a studio too difficult to kind of wrangle together? Well, I've, I've shown up a bit on the, uh, the crock pot mm-hmm. that uh, Tom and Caro do from time to time. And it's scheduling is hard. Yes. Um, like if it were, you know, if it were part of my job, uh, I would, you know, I'd love to, to do more podcasting. Um, but doing it on, on my free time is, is hard enough these days. Uh, I mean, now with, you know, a wife and, uh, have a kid, uh, which is, you know, those things take up time. <laughs> so, so the, the, like it, when I was doing the, the hotspot, I would like, my weekends were almost reserved for whatever game was coming out the next Tuesday. I would just play through it the weekend before so that I could talk about it with the reviewer on the show. Um, that's not really an option these days. Yeah. So like to have the free time to, you know, play whatever games are going to be talked about and then reserve the time for the podcast itself. So it, it can be, it can be a bit tricky. No. Yeah. It's scheduling in general. It just seems almost impossible at times. Uh, so last quick thing, uh, Again, you talk to a lot of interesting people in this industry. You talk to a lot of people who are in dev teams, you know, doing interesting things. Uh, is there a specific interview? You mentioned that that mobile story earlier, but is there any other specific interview you recently did? Whether it's about you know these console half steps that are coming up, uh, NX, anything like that. Uh, has there been anyone specifically specifically that stands out as like, wow, this was a really cool thing that you recently posted on Games Industry Dubbers? I can't really point to an interview offhand, but I will. I will plug something else if you don't mind. All right, great, go for it. Uh, and that was a uh, story on conflict minerals in the games industry and how reporting on conflict minerals is uh, really in a poor state. Um, so you've got. Anything that uses gold, tantalum, tungsten, or tin, 3TG materials, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. government requires uh, U.S. companies that are publicly traded to file updates on those conflict minerals. And they're called conflict minerals because a lot of them can be sourced uh, from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, where they are used... Uh, they're basically sold by factions engaged in horrible death destruction and, you know, human rights violations. So companies will, you know, basically uh, buy them cheap off of uh, people that have obtained these minerals through dubious means or, uh, you know, human slavery, forced labor, things like that. Um, and so these companies are required when they, when they have things like uh, game plan hardware uses 3TG. Uh, Toys to Life stuff uses 3TG. Um, so a lot of, even some of the tchotchkes that you would, that you would see, uh, branded stuff uses it. Uh, so all they have to do is report to the, to the government that, uh, you know, here's our efforts on making sure that 
our business is not actively funding war crimes. Oh, man. And they are, um, they're really sad to read these, these reports because, like, even the best of them are just kind of like, eh, you know, it's like a shrug. In, in 2013, um, Microsoft identified, kind of laid out its supply chain in, in these reports. And they, they said, uh, we have 276 active suppliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they survey those suppliers to say, okay, where did you get the items that you, you know, used in our, in our products? And then the suppliers are like, okay, well, here's a list of refineries and smelters where we, where we got those products. And then those, those are on an international um, list that is basically a white list saying like, okay, these people, these, these operations have been certified as conflict-free uh, sourcing operations. So they're, they're okay. Um, and it's, it's kind of disturbing like how many of uh, the, the parts of the supply chain actually sort of break down. Like to start with, um, you, you need to survey your first level supplier. And so many of the companies can't even get those suppliers to respond to them. Oh my God. So like in, uh, in 2014, Microsoft had 357 suppliers and only 82% of them actually bothered to return the survey. So the other 18, it's basically just, you know, a middle finger from your business partner. (laughs) Man. And, and, like Microsoft has said, well, we have a an escalation process where if these, you know, suppliers continue to not, you know, give us insight, to not respond to us, then, you know, uh, we have sanctions up to and including termination of the contract. You know, but, but no one actually does, except Apple. Apple actually, um, last year they terminated four contracts with, uh, with these, these, suppliers or with the the smelting and refinery companies because Apple goes big enough that they go direct to them. Mm. Uh, And this year, Apple actually had uh, 100% participation in their, you know, in the conflict free sourcing initiative stuff from their supply chain. So like Apple is right now the gold standard because most other companies just have no idea what's going on. Like, like Disney has uh, 1,300 suppliers of retail merchandise. Just over half of them actually returned the surveys to say oh whether or not God. they're using Because Apple actually terminated some of those beforehand, is, is it because they showed that they would actually go through with it? Is that why they're getting all these returns? I think that's part of it. Uh, Apple, I think, also deals with fewer suppliers mm. than Disney. Um, maybe suppliers that don't use three TGs don't feel like it's all that Im- you know imperative to return the surveys. But like the fact that, that Disney just sits there and says like, you know, here's here's our report. And yes, this represents 54% of our supply chain. You know, so 46% of it is just completely unknown to us. Oh my God. When you're the company 
giving these people money when you are doing business with them? That seems like you have leverage over them and you should be able to get them to at least say yes, no, you know, <laughs> answer your so. question. So, so this is, it's, it's been a problem uh, for a while and, and it's, it's been getting slightly better. Um, like I've, I've done, and even these laws for disclosure only, only came in recently. Um, so like I did a story in uh, June of 2015 about this and a story this June about it. I'll do a story next June about it. Um, and these stories, they like, they don't take an incredible amount of time because, you know, all of this is in SEC filings. Uh, so the bigger problem is just kind of trying to wrap your head around a bazillion different numbers from all these companies and figuring out which ones are actually apples to apples comparisons. Because yeah. some of them report the number of suppliers, some of them don't. Some do the number of refiners and smelters, some of them don't. So that's that's a bit of a nightmare. But the, they're still somewhat time intensive though, right? Yeah. And we run them. And then I look at the traffic they do, and I feel very sad. <laughs> so, like these these are the stories that if I'm if I'm made to justify um, the stories that I write with hits, I can't write these stories. But yeah, it's great that you do write for a place that allows you to do that because that seems more than worthwhile to follow through on this data and to figure out you know what it's actually saying. Uh, are you? Are you the only one really reporting on this? Have you seen this elsewhere? There, there have been a few reports on this in the past. And uh, like I've seen my reports the last couple of years, um, a handful of other sites with, you know, also uh, industry-focused readership uh, will pick up on the GI Biz report of it. Mm. Um, so like I'm certainly not the first to have done this. But um, yeah, they it just doesn't get widely reported, Man. which which bothers me because like this is also one of the in in video games like there's so so little access that you get to things since you're not dealing with you know when I was on the police beat I could fill out Freedom of Information Act requests and, yeah. and get you know and they didn't have any choice really but to give me some of the things that I needed. So, you know, it's, it's a lot easier to do that sort of investigative reporting when you can rely on certain aspects like that. And I actually have done a few FOIA requests for uh, games journalism. And it um, hasn't panned out? Um, the only thing that I got was uh, I did a FOIA request for America's Army to get the uh, game design document. Mm hmm. Because we never really get to take a look at game design documents. That's so true. I figure if the American taxpayer has already paid for this game design document, maybe we could actually see what it's like and put it out there so that readers could get an idea of like, hey, this is what a game design document looks like. And uh, they, 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 I also asked for you know budget information, stuff like that. And I fought with them, like just going through the bureaucracy of it for like half a year. And what I eventually got was like um, the the budget for America's Army over the course of like five years, and they would just give me like one number for each year. Oh, jeez, that that's it? That's what they gave you after all that time? That was, that was basically it. 
but I mean, I, hey, I got to do a, you know, a, <laughs> I got to do a, a story for a video game news site based on a Freedom of Information Act request. <laughs> You're one of the few. That that does not happen very often. No, that seems like something well, you should like yeah, put on your resume. Yeah, well, I think I put it on my LinkedIn thing. <laughs> There's there's a few things like every few years I might get like an idea to do something, something like tedious, <laughs> like that, <laughs> knowing that it's just something that no one else has probably done before. So like I, I think I might have been the first um, first person covering uh, like lobbying expenditures yeah. in the U.S. from the ESA and things like that. You know th- these aren't these aren't like big flashy stories uh, but you know they might they might benefit people to be able to look at that they might provide a little bit more insight onto to you know what's going on yeah it's not uh, the, it's not the sexy stuff it's not the stuff that like you said is going to grab all that general kind of broad attention but it's the stuff that i don't think we have enough of um, yeah, it's it's out there now at least right yeah and it's 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 like why you send people to to you know, city council meetings for the local paper because they'll talk about stuff. And even if it's really boring at the time and doesn't matter to anyone, you know, maybe five years down the road, people doing a search of the newspaper archives will be like, oh, here's this thing, which is part of this super shady real estate deal, which is going to get, you know, political officials jailed for corruption. And now we have a, a track record of it. Basically, we have you know, something that we can point to. It's in the public sphere of knowledge. So it's, it can inform future coverage. God, the, the process of that can be so dull. Like you said, I used to like do like notes and stuff for a high school school board. When I was in high school, I was like this weird student liaison and agreed like some of that stuff you do need, but by the end you're like, Oh, I'm so sick of hearing about these minor budget changes for the gym program. Uh, but yeah, again, I, I do think it's, it's critical. Like when you're doing it, you don't know what's going to become super relevant later on. Yeah. Like, um, I, I do a column for GI uh, 10 years ago this month where I just look through all the stories that they had from 10 years ago, the same month mm-hmm. and, uh, then kind of do like a little digest thing of them. And it's, um, there's a new one up today and it's, it's really Weird how, I mean, maybe this is just me, but I, I consistently find something in there like that I find super entertaining or providing an interesting uh, perspective on things. And like the, the, one, the one that we ran today, um, the, the story uh, from 10 years ago that I found was the founding of Green Monster Games, mm-hmm. which was Kurt Schilling's 38 <sighs> Studios before they had to change their name because I guess the Red Sox had a green monster trademark or something. Uh, And you read that story and it talks about how the studio will quote, burst onto the scene in epic and remarkable fashion (laughs) and quote, turn the industry on its ear with a product release and business model never before seen end quote. It sure did. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, that's, I, I, Looking back on things, knowing what we know now, there's there are some times where you can kind of go, oh yeah, yeah, I see. <laughs> <laughs> Did, wasn't that also a podcast segment on the hotspot for a while, like the ten years ago? 
and I like doing it on the the, the podcast. So yeah. that's why I kind of changed it for gi.biz. Like there was another one from from the the current thing about how um, it was just a short little news thing from Vivendi saying that it had signed a deal with uh, Double Fine Productions to publish their next game. And I had a quote from Tim Schafer saying, combine a developer-friendly attitude, support for innovation, major publisher status with a worldwide scope, and you have a perfect match for Double Fine. Oh my and then, like, the same month, we had a story uh, of Activision with uh, Bobby Kotick telling investors that he was laser-focused on exploiting franchise, uh, all their franchises, taking them, annualizing them, increasing their penetration and their interest to consumers every single year. So, like, those, those happened side by side in September of 2006. And at the time, there's no link between them at all. But then, you know, a, a year and a half, two years Activision merge, and then all of a sudden Brutal Legend is, you know, an Activision thing, and then Bobby Kotick cuts it because it doesn't have the potential to be exploited. And Oh man, he just, he loved using the creepiest words. Possible. It was always the worst words that made him just sound like some weird, like gremlin and like, ugh, it was like disgusting. Yeah. So like, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of great insight to take away from that, but I think it's, it's at the very least entertaining and, and, and kind of maybe a little informative to, to see the shape of these things as they, they, coalesce into the the horrible car crash that they've come later on (laughs) no absolutely and yeah with the hindsight it's twice as fun um brennan i don't want to keep you too much longer so uh if people do want to find your work is so everything's going to be on uh, gi.biz and what is your twitter handle uh my twitter handle is very creative it's uh at brendan sinclair oh man you threw me for a, a loop there i had no idea uh again Thank you for coming on. Uh, it's it's been cool talking to you as someone who has listened to you, like listened to you for years and years while you were doing the hotspot. And hopefully one day you uh, do another podcast. I know I know you said you're on the Crockpot, but hopefully maybe one day you'll be a part of another one. Well, it's been my pleasure. Never never say never, right? <laughs> Thanks again, and uh, hopefully everyone tunes back in for the next episode of the Ten Ninety Nine.